we are moving along to part two in our series. We were in the promise throughout Christmas time, and we are moving on in our series on the life of Christ now, as you see, to the example. And today we're going to kind of walk through a, a very famous passage today in the temptation of the, the life of Christ. And maybe through this Christmas time, holiday season, you have felt some kind of temptation in your life. Maybe it's something as simple as silly as eating too many sweets, even though you know your body doesn't need it. Or maybe it's something even more serious where you have been facing some sexual temptation or financial temptation to spend money that you do not have or other temptations where the devil and Satan has really been wrecking some havoc in your life. I think today's message will be that for you as we look at how Jesus confronted Satan and responded to Satan and how we can work through the temptations in our life. We're going to read in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. said, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him. How many of you all have ever fasted any period of time? Yeah. It, when you fast... Like today, we do, more people do it just for a body cleansing, not necessarily a spiritual cleansing. It's kind of the, you know, the intermittent fasting is the, the new craze of uh, our society. You know, my wife here recently, she fasted, I think, four days, um, and it is 40 days. Can you imagine fasting 40 days, the weakness that Jesus must have felt at this point. You know, one of the things as we kind of work through this passage, we start this passage with the, the word then. So then Jesus was led in, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And it's pointing back to what happened in chapter 3 of Matthew. What happened in chapter 3, Jesus had been baptized, where the voice of the Father at his baptism by John the Baptist, declared over him, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This, no doubt, was a spiritual high, right? The baptism of Jesus. Then, we go from a spiritual high, then, the devil. I think that's the way it is so many times in our life. This is how Satan works. Spiritual highs are followed by spiritual lows. The area Jesus is in is called Jeshimon, which literally means the devastation. This was a horrible place to spend 40 days, essentially six weeks alone, and have the devil come. I cannot imagine a worse situation. But whenever God does something great in your life, you can count on it that Satan will be right behind him to try and pull up the seed that God just planted in your life. Some of you are going through that right now. Some of you are about to go through it. And I want you to recognize it for what it is so that you don't panic. What is wrong? God, what are you doing? God, you seem so close. His voice was so clear. Was it an illusion? No. Times of illumination, times of God working in your life are often followed by times of testing. It's 
why we see this passage start in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, essentially saying, then the devil. The fact that you go through a time of temptation and struggle doesn't mean that you are a bad Christian or that you experienced at salvation or baptism wasn't real. Jesus was tempted severely right after a spiritual high, and so will you be. Notice the reality of Satan. Many people in our society today will tell you to believe in a God or a Satan is unsophisticated or naive. And we have made Satan out to be a cartoon character, haven't we? With a pitchfork and horns, wearing a red spandex suit, make him look like he's like not threatening. That's what we've made Satan out to be. And I'm not talking about that, but a spiritual being that works in the world for evil and destruction in the world as a whole, but individually in your life. Jesus didn't think it was naive because he knew Satan was real. Neither did Peter, Paul, or John. You see, Satan is mentioned 250 times throughout the New Testament, which means almost once per chapter. And I would say that's it's not naive to believe in Satan. If you think all the distractions that work in your family that made it hard to keep God at the center are simply the result of a demanding schedule, then you are naive. If you think the bitterness creeping up in your soul is just your frustration of being misunderstood, then you're naive. There is an enemy whose sole goal is to steal, to destroy, to kill, and Jesus says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. Paul said we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And you see, if, if you don't know who you're fighting against, then you won't know how to fight him. Satan doesn't care if you believe in him or not. In fact, it helps him if you don't believe in him because you're most vulnerable to an enemy when you won't even acknowledge the existence of that enemy. Now watch after the enemy comes first. It says in verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Wait, if? If? What had God just declared to Jesus at his baptism? In Matthew 3.17, what did it say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now Satan is coming back behind God. And what is he doing? If that is true. If you want to write one thing down, to get one thing out of this message, write this down. Satan puts question marks in your life where God has put periods. Satan puts question marks in your life where God has put periods. From the beginning, his tactic has, be, has been to separate us from the word of God. In the Garden of Eden, he showed up exactly in the same way, doing what? Putting question marks. Did God really say that? Is what he asked Adam and Eve. Are you sure he has your best interests at heart? Jesus told a story about a farmer who went out to scatter some seed. And after he did a bird, 
who represents Satan, Jesus said, came along and snatched it up before it could take root. That is literally what he does in our life when he makes us question what God has already declared. His strategy is not to make you doubt God's word, really, but to distract you from God's word. Of course, for some of you, you don't know enough of God's word for Satan to have anything to steal, which is why he leaves you alone, because ignorance serves him best. Let's go back to verse 3. It says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command those stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's see this first temptation. The first temptation we have here that we can see is to prioritize the gifts of God over God himself. That's very easy for us to do in a country that is so blessed with the gifts of God. There was nothing wrong with bread, nothing at all wrong with bread, but it was not the will of God for Jesus at this time. He had been led by the Spirit to the wilderness to fast. It is significant that the first temptation is not to do something blatantly immoral. It's not to go after something that's just terrible. The first temptation is to go after something good that's just not in God's plan yet. Satan is not tempting Jesus with something bad. He's tempting Jesus with bread. Satan's primary strategy is to take a good thing, like a job or a marriage or companionship or children, and to make it so important that it drives all of your decisions in life because you think, I want this more than anything. You think, I can't be single. I can't be happy like this. Or you think, God's not working fast enough, so I'll take matters into my own hands. I have to make more money. I have to get ahead. God is moving too slowly. I have to have the approval of friends. I have to be the best. I have to be the most popular kid at school. I have to be recognized. All of these things. And that desire, it dominates your emotions. It controls your behavior. And what is Jesus' response? He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy where Israel had been wandering in the wilderness. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. There is something more important to me, he says, than even the bread. And that more important to me is the fellowship with God the Father. Something more sustaining to me than even physical food is God's declaration over me that I am his beloved son. Physical bread is good, but my soul finds completeness in God. Temptation number one is to prioritize the gifts of God over God himself, to turn a good thing into an ultimate thing and replace God with it. If you live by success, you will die by success because because success cannot sustain you. If you live by fellowship with the Father, you'll have life and joy never ending. So temptation number one is to replace the giver with the gift. 
Let's keep reading verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle, pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. We have Satan here in this passage quoting scripture. Listen, he knows the Bible, and he knows how to use them. Can I stop and just say this? Just because you find a verse for something in the Bible doesn't mean that it's right for you to use it to explain the actions that you want to do in your life. People have given me over the years some of the most jacked up interpretations of Scripture that you can ever imagine. The Bible says God wants me to be happy and I can't be happy where I am, so I need to do this. It's not the way it works. I just quit my job and liquidated my retirement. I put it all into the magic counting bean business. Because the Bible says I can do all things through Christ. That's not the way that verse works. One of the reasons we encourage you to be in small groups is that you are much less likely to misinterpret Scripture when you're among a fellowship of believers. People that say, I'm pretty sure that's not what that verse means and that we can come together and speak truth into your life. Jesus says to him in verse 7, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what is he saying here? The cure word, I think, is test. Satan is tempting Jesus to test God, to prove that God will take care of him. You know, if you really are the Son of God, if you really cared about you, he wouldn't let you get hurt in a situation like this. So why don't you just test God and see if he keeps you safe, and then you'll know if you really are the Son of God. Just go ahead and throw yourself off the Temple Mount and see if God takes care of you. Then you'll really know. Let's test God. And Jesus' response is, why would I need God to prove to me what he has already declared. Why would I need to test God to see if he is telling the truth? Temptation number two. To interpret God through your circumstances rather than his word. And I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves at some point, have fallen to this temptation. To interpret God through your circumstances rather than his word is easy to succumb to this. When life goes good, we think God is happy with us. But when it goes bad, we think God must be angry with us. Or even we start to question his existence. God, you say you love me, but this. Or we start saying, God, what have I done wrong? Why are you punishing me? Look at Jesus. He was the beloved son, completely pleasing to God, completely in step with the Spirit, exactly doing what he was supposed to be doing, yet not shielded from pain. Jesus said that for those who follow him, the cross would be the center of their life. When Jesus said, follow me, He wasn't talking about walking barefoot through the meadow and swimming in waterfalls and rainbows, 
but to carry your cross where you went. When that happens, when the Spirit takes you into the desert of financial hardship, betrayal by friends, an uncooperative spouse, disrespect to unappreciative children, what will you believe in those hard times? Will you interpret God's word through your circumstances or your circumstances through God's word? Because, listen, we have something even better than all of the Old Testament prophets had. They had the promises of God's word and the prophets. We have today the demonstration of God's word through the cross. They only had the hope, but we have the demonstration of it because of Jesus on the cross. John Owen, the famous writer and preacher, said that the greatest insult you can give to God after the cross would be to doubt his love for you. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Temptation number three. To pursue a good thing in the wrong way. To pursue a good thing in the wrong way. Let me tell you why this temptation is so powerful. The kingdoms of the world are exactly what Jesus had come for. That is exactly what God had promised to Jesus. Satan is offering him a chance to have it through a shortcut. He's offering him the chance to avoid the cross, to have the kingdoms of the world without the crucifixion on the cross. This is the temptation to compromise. You really, really want to get there, and you think that's what God wants, but God doesn't seem to be getting there fast enough for you. I heard a guy say that when he was a child, he used to pray every night for the Lord to give him a bicycle. And after weeks and weeks and weeks of that prayer not being answered, he figured that God and all of his wisdom doesn't work that way, so he just stole one and asked for forgiveness. We laugh at that, but we act that way so many times in our lives. The temptation to take a shortcut to things you think you are entitled to. It's the temptation, for example, to sacrifice your integrity or family responsibility to get to the next level on the corporate ladder. Let me tell you where this lie starts. It starts in this moment when you are frustrated with life. You think the issues, the issue is your circumstance that you are in, the person you're married to or not married to, or the job or the amount of money you make, and you think, if I could just get this thing or get rid of this thing, then I would be happy. But that's not the issue. If you really want to have joy, if you need you need to be able to look up at a dark ceiling in bed at night and know you are exactly where God wants you to be in that moment doing exactly what God wants you to do. That is the only way to have true peace in life. 
Jesus wanted fellowship with the Father more than he wanted anything, more than he wanted to achieve his goals and dreams, even more than he wanted bread after 40 days of fasting. And because of that, he could resist Satan. He kept his integrity because fellowship with the Father was his choice portion, his highest ambition, his living bread. And guess what? He got all of the kingdoms of the earth because he sought unbroken fellowship with the Father. Verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You know, I kind of get the picture of this, and the devil left him. I kind of get the picture of like, you know, Emperor Palpatine being thrown down the tunnel at the end of the Return to the Jedi. Like Satan just kind of falling off out into the abyss is the way my mind kind of works. But Satan is coming back, and he did, both to Jesus and to you. These three temptations are the core of his strategy, to prioritize something good more than you do God. To evaluate how God feels about you by your circumstances. We are such a feeling society. We get trapped in our emotions and our feelings instead of living by the truth of God's word and to go around God to get something good. So let me spend our last few minutes today explaining why the way Jesus overcame these temptations will also give you the ability to overcome your temptations. And it's not just that we learn scripture and quote it to Satan. That's what Jesus did. He, he quoted scripture. As important that it, as it is, scripture tells us that we are to hide God's word in our heart. And we should. But we should know the Bible. But there's something more going on here. Jesus is more than just our example. He does something here that enables us to overcome our temptation. In the wilderness, you see, he is reenacting the temptation of mankind so that he can reverse the fall. You see, man in Genesis chapter 1 had been in the perfect environment, hadn't they? In the Garden of Eden. When Satan came to him and said, did God really say this? Are you sure God is good? Eat this fruit. It's more important than fellowship with God. This is the better way. You see, you'll become wise like God. That is a better way for you. And the first man, Adam, in a perfect environment, believed Satan lies. He, you see, he prioritized the gifts of God over God himself. He doubted the goodness of God and compromised God's laws in pursuit of a good You see the parallels here between Genesis chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4? The first temptation in the garden and the temptation of Satan by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the second Adam, by contrast, rejects Satan lies. Not in the garden of Eden where all of his needs have been met, but in the wilderness where he is hungry. He prioritizes fellowship with the Father above all. All that we did wrong, he did right. So when it came time to die, he could be our condemnation because a perfect life that ended under the the condemnation of death could free those under the condemnation of death and restore them to everlasting life. 
And what does and what that does is it assures to us our place with the Father, which gives to us the strength to overcome the temptations of Satan. And even more, it unites us to the Spirit, which means the same one who overcame these temptations for me can now overcome these temptations in my life through me with the working of the Spirit. You see, many people interpret the big point of this passage as meaning that the way we overcome Satan is by knowing more scripture than he does. Growing up, this was always kind of explained to me like Jesus' use of scripture was some kind of lightsaber duel. When Satan throws a temptation, you ward it off by saying, oh no, 1 Peter 3.8, here you go, Satan. Bam, that counters Satan's power, and Satan throws another one at you, and you're like, ah, I got that one, but do you know the genealogy between David and Jehoiakim? There you go. Satan knows more scripture than you will ever know. And reciting one verse you know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, isn't going to make Satan run away cowering in fear. There's something specific about the word of God that Jesus recalls each time, something that undergirds every verse he quotes in this passage. Something so powerful that not even Satan can refute it. What is that? It's his identity in the eyes of the Father. Satan says before the temptation, what? If you are the Son of God. Everything Jesus quotes ultimately goes back to the security he possesses in who he is in God's eyes. People think Satan's main work is weird stuff, making people levitate and foam at the mouth and spells. and Yeah, Satan does work in that realm, but Satan was not out in the wilderness doing all of that with Jesus. He was making him question God's presence and God's plan, making him doubt the goodness of God toward him. This is your main temptation, the root of all temptations, to establish your identity in something other than God's declaration over you in Christ. All throughout the New Testament, you'll hear Paul use the phrase, in Christ. In Christ. Who are you in Christ? That is our identity. Our identity in Christ is that we are beloved sons and daughters. Satan wants you to base your identity on how you live. You think, Everything's going good in life, so I must be good with God. When you're struggling, you think God's withholding his verdict on you until he sees you make it. Or he wants you to base what you believe about the love of God on your circumstances. There's, he'll throw these doubts. There's no way God could love you when you're, these awful, terrible things are happening in your life. But Jesus, God's own son, came to earth to substitute himself for you which secures your place before the father because he paid your sin debt entirely 
His act upon the cross secured God's steadfast love for you in Christ. If he would go through all of this for you, you can trust that he will be a constant, present father in your life. That's what shatters the power of Satan. It's the word of the gospel. That's what helps you fight the temptations of Satan in your life, going back to who you are in Christ. God has made you a new creation in Christ, separating your sins as far as the east is from the west, promising to make all things new in your life. As we leave this place today and you are faced with temptation, the circumstances of life seem to be caving in around you and you start to question where is God? Remember who you are in Christ and never doubt his steadfast love for you. Let's pray.